time for comments, questions, um, because I, my, my posture towards this stuff is we're all having a spiritual conversation, so I want to make sure that we leave space um, to hear from what's stirring inside of you. Okay, so what I want to do is put this kind of to the test. If, if this definition of love is accurate, that love is a rugged commitment to be with someone, to be for someone, with Christ as the standard for as long as it takes, um, does it actually work? Is it helpful? Does it, this is one of the things I talk a lot in the work that we do in Nashville with Muslims and Christians is um, the Quran is very different than the New Testament. And anybody who says they're the same just hasn't read either one, right? So it's disingenuous to pretend like we're the same. Now, we have a lot in common, but what we agree on in our work is that we want to use our sacred text for the flourishing of our city. That's what we agree upon. We might disagree how Jews, Muslims, Baha'i, Buddhists, Christians uh, talk about it, our language, but what we want is for our city to flourish. So do things work? Is there a, is there a practical kind of payoff to this stuff? So first thing I want to do is, okay, if we're going to love well, and this is going to feel super, super Oprah to you right now, and it's and it's all, yeah. <laughs> yes. And you get a Lexus with a Pepperdine license plate, and you get a yeah. It's uh, funny. Nothing I'm about to say I can I can't prove any of this, but I just know it's true in my bones. The healthiest people who love other people well know how to love themselves well also. Another way to say that is your ability to love other people is directly connected to your ability to love yourself well. I just realized it was you who raised your hand earlier, Chris. Good to see you. <laughs> now, where we go wrong is we don't know how to love ourselves well, naturally, a lot of times. Life beats us up jagged edges to life. And so to compensate for that shame that we feel, that insecurity that I don't measure up, I'm not as smart as her, I don't look like him, I don't come from that, all these ways that we feel inadequate, right? So we're trying to love others to fill that, but we don't often get around to learning how to love ourselves until we have no other choice. You go through a divorce. You get feedback from your kids. It's not what you want to hear. You have some kind of personal faith crisis. Anxiety takes over your life, right? You realize it's not working, so I've got to do some kind of different work. And for some of you, that's been a therapist. It's been a spiritual director. It's been EMDR. It's been the Enneagram. It's been all of that, <laughs> plus the Pe Pepperdine Bible lectures, um, but this is the common thread of the people in my life that I want to be like. They are very comfortable being by themselves, with themselves for long periods of time. That does not come naturally to me. So what I'm proposing is that when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, the Shema, and then he says, love your neighbor as yourself, he is implying the entire time some kind of reasonable assumption that most of us believe it's a good idea to treat ourselves well. And it's right there hiding in plain sight as your self. So let's, let's just kind of break this down practically. How do you talk to yourself? I had a guy say to me one time, he's like, you know why I talk to myself? No, sir. He said, I'm the only one who will listen. I'll listen. <laughs> How do you talk to yourself? The Enneagram, again, has been immensely helpful for me. I will never forget sitting at the kitchen table with my wife reading Suzanne's manuscript before it was published called The Road Back to You. It sold a few copies. 
before it was published. I'm reading it at the kitchen table with my wife, who is suspicious of anything that a preacher brings home. She was raised by a preacher. She is married to a preacher. She is not impressed with preachers, ever. And I said, I really need to read you something. And Suzanne has a way of describing the perfectionist, which is rooted in love, that most ones don't ever hear because ones always hear judgment. No matter what it is, they hear judgment. And I started to read Suzanne's chapter on perfectionists, and I have found an inordinate amount of women in conservative churches who identify as ones and sixes or twos. And my wife, who doesn't cry very often, just big. I'm reading this chapter to her at our kitchen table. Now, I told you at the beginning, I'm an Enneagram 3. My whole day is, how much can I get done? And how quickly can I get it done? Efficiency is like a drug to me. So when you have two people who are married to each other, they sleep in the same bed, night after night, or night after night. Did you start the dishwasher? I forgot. Did you lock the front door? We live in a safe neighborhood. Is the garage door shut? I'll get up and check. Why do you wait till I'm comfortable in bed to ask me that, right? You put two people in the same bed together, the same home, the same covenant, whatever you want to call that relationship that happens when two people live together. And you do that year after year after year. It gets hard. And don't trust anybody who says anything different. Because they're either lying or one of them gave up a long time ago. So when I'm reading Kara, Suzanne's chapter about the inner critic, and Suzanne's observation that ones don't realize that not everyone does that, you mean you don't have an inner critic? I have an inner cheerleader who is always ready. Here was one of our practical realizations about how hard it is to love well. When Kara wakes up in the morning, perfectionist, she's thinking, I'm already behind. Uh, there's so much to do, so much to make better, so much to improve. Like, if your lens is improving and you live on planet Earth, that's a tough gig. Everywhere you go, something could be better. I don't wake up like that. I've got just enough white male in me that I wake up and I think, I kind of like who I am. I love my life. And Kara is next to me thinking, this guy... <laughs> Those are two very different narratives. So when we talk about how do we love ourselves, we cannot do this until we're honest about the stories that we tell ourselves. And if we had a lot, a lot of time, we could unpack this, but we are the stories we tell ourselves. That's why those early childhood stories are so foundational. Because if you grew up in a very tense family unit, where love is not spoken and love is not demonstrated, you start to ask yourself deeper questions you don't even know you're asking about your own worth, your own identity, and your own value in that system. And then you take it into all the other systems that you're going to exist in for the rest of your life. So when I'm talking about self-love, I'm saying you have to be ruthlessly honest with the story you're telling yourself. Someone disrespects you. This, this happened to me at Whole Foods at 7.15 this morning. Not going to get into the details. It was incredibly jarring and surprising to this Nashville kid. Someone was very disrespectful to me. The story I tell myself is, I have to edit that. <laughs> the PG version is, I bet that young man has had a troubled life up to this point. For him to say that to a complete stranger we have to be ruthlessly honest about the story we tell ourselves in all these different moments of life. 
when it's nine o'clock at night and you go to grab that ice cream? Why do I need this ice cream? Why do I need a third dose? I think I hit my Amazon limit that I set for myself. Day 10, and I'm supposed to, that's supposed to last me for the entire month. But I need that. The stories we tell ourselves make, make, make us who we are. So in this idea that Jesus is assuming that, that love of self is part of a healthier way of being in the world, and this I also borrow from Bell Hooks, if you don't know the work of Bell Hooks. Uh, she is a fascinating, they are a fascinating human being, just fascinating. Bell Hooks um, was one of the first people who was able to put into language that I could access how imperative it is to, to do the work of loving yourself if you ever think that you're going to be able to love somebody else well. What do you say to yourself when you mess up? What do you say to yourself when you forget to do something you said you were going to do and someone was counting on you? What do you say to yourself when you set a goal and you fail miserably? What do you say to yourself when someone comes to you and says, I just, I just don't care for you. I don't like you. What is the default story that you tell yourself in these different moments? This is the way that you measure the interior monologue that's happening all the time. And again, depending on the, the, the counseling the therapy, therapist that you've been exposed to, regulating that self-talk, being aware of that self-talk is a crucial first step in learning how to be with yourself and to love yourself. Now, if you think this is just a bunch of gobbledygook, okay. I pastor a church of 2,000 people. It is astonishing to me how many people in our church feel guilty when I even suggest the idea that they need to learn how to love themselves well because they grew up in cultures of obedience. They grew up in cultures of behavior modification, what Dallas Willard calls sin management. They grew up in family systems that care very much about the appearance of things, not the essence of things. And so when you suggest to someone who's been in a church their entire lives, I don't think you know how to love yourself well, they reject the premise to begin with. And what I'm suggesting is this is partly what's missing for families, marriages, relationships, and churches to get healthy. Is when you take ownership, when you rise up and say, I'm going to do the work to learn how to love myself well. That's not the same as being selfish, it's not the same as being lazy self-absorbed. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is most of us agree that God has called us to love others well. And what I'm saying is God expects you to apply that to yourself the same way that he does your enemies, the vulnerable, the poor. Why would he leave you out of that? And now the uh, audience participation point of our program. Before I tell you how this works for me, those of you who have done some of this work, how do you love yourself well? What does that look like? How do you take care of yourself is another way to say this. What do you do to take care of yourself? That's, let's start with healthy. What are some healthy things? Yes. Gave myself enough time to rest and then meditate and then also um, eat healthy. It doesn't mean eat vegetarian, but just eat healthy, and then exercise, yeah. All connectivity between your body and your spirit, making sure those two are integrated. That's a common. Okay, good. What else? What do you do to take care of yourself, to love yourself? Okay. 
That sounds like some good work to do. Yeah. You're probably not alone in that either. What, what have you, there's a lot of wisdom in this room. What have you found that works? Yeah, go ahead. Let's just, just fire away. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry? Permission to say no. Boundary work. Man, my wife did a bunch of boundary work during COVID. And then she enrolled me in the class and taught me the next 12 months about that. Yeah, the permission to say no. Learning how to forgive yourself. Yes. Mm. Absolutely. Play. Play. Yeah, some, someone used the word earlier when they were describing their story, safe. Safe. One of the, we have some other preachers in the room. One, one of the, the, Parker Palmer has this amazing image of, um, calls it, uh, I think he calls it religious performers. And this could be teacher, preacher, a- anybody who's got like a group of people they're trying to inspire or lead. And he uses this metaphor and he says there's a front stage and a backstage. And the problem is in religion, we reward the front stage. You, I mean, this is just right down the line, Jesus, the Pharisees, parable, right? And he says, what happens though is if you live your life on the front stage for so long, you forget there's a backstage. And so there's no there there, right? There's, no, there's nothing there. There's no substance to you. There's no like gravitas, no soul. And um, what you're describing is a, a community of friends, which you have to courageously be transparent with who you really are, not who you're pretending to be. You're, you're married to a minister. So um, my wife and I were at this conference in January, and there's all these churches from around the United States and trans-denominational. And every spouse of a pastor, because not all the spouses were women, some of the spouses were men, but every spouse of a pastor or a minister identified in the introduction by who they were married to and what church. And I'm married to a woman who's done some work. And her BS meter is strong. <laughs> when it came to her and the host of the, uh, the gathering handed her the microphone, she said, my name's Kara, and I'm really happy to be here. She didn't identify herself with me, our church, work. That was her little way of needling the institution, right? She knows who she is. Yeah. How else do you guys take care of yourself? That's great. So Friday is a consistent Sabbath. Okay, what, what, do you, what did you do last Friday? That's beautiful. That's definitely a way. I'm glad our churches are embracing that more and more. That's great. Someone else said their hand. Sometimes ask that first time you ask for help is the most courageous thing you can do. <laughs> this feels good. Yeah. Anybody else want to bear witness to how you take care of yourself? Thank you for sharing that. I had a fellow minister say to me recently, he said, um, I want to make sure I say it right. He said, Josh, do you believe that God loves you just as much as he loves Jesus? And I don't know why, but I have never thought about it like that before. Surely that's in a Lucado book somewhere. Right? But... But that, that's, that is part of the essence of the gospel, is God so loves the world, and you're part of that world, and I'm part of that world. Any other uh, testimony about what it looks like to love yourself well, take care of yourself? Of course, the good news in this is that other people will benefit when you do this work. 
your children, your grandchildren, your friend, like everyone else will feel this work that you're doing. Uh, you, I just, you just know it when you're in a room with someone who's done that kind of work. When you're at a table, a conversation, you just, there's something different about it. Um, I've told different versions of this story, but it's, it's one of the most tangible for me. When we were still living in Michigan, this was quite a while ago, um, I did a lot of work with young adults, and uh, the church that I was, it's the church I grew up in, but the church that we were working with um, was connected to Ford Chrysler and GM by proximity. We were in Rochester Hills, Michigan, which is kind of part of that leadership big three culture. So there's a lot of money in that county, Oakland County. Um, a lot of the young adult children of these uber-successful Ford Chrysler GM kids are a mess. And this is, <laughs> this is I'm going to date myself, but this is when you used to have to smoke weed, not, you know, put it in the brownie, the cookie, the gummy, whatever we're doing now. Um, we, it was a collective, not me, but you know what I mean. Um, and so, so I dealt with, 20-somethings who literally were, their existence was just indulging, and they had more money than they knew. Well, they didn't. Their parents had more money than they knew what to do with. And there was this one particular young adult in our church. I'll, I'll change some of the details, but her name's Patrice. And when, they, when she first started kind of becoming part of our community, she was 23, 24, and I knew she had a drug problem. She was very honest about it. She was going to NA. She was working the steps. She would relapse and then three months sober and then relapse three months sober, which is pretty normal if you've been around anybody who's really in addiction. That's, that's, a, that's usually how it goes. And her boyfriend, Nick, was also um, in AA and NA. And Nick overdosed on another young adult's methadone, which is to help people wean off heroin eventually. And, you know, there's debates about how this works, but, well, it is, it's a, it's a crime in most states to share your methadone, probably all states, to share your methadone with somebody else. And so this particular young adult, um, this has all been worked out through the court, so this is the only reason I'm telling this story, but this particular young adult was really nervous that he was going to go to prison because his friend, OD, died. I woke up on a Monday morning, turned my cell phone on. It was one of those old Nokias. You remember that when we would turn our phones off and on? Not just silence, but actually turn it off. I turned, powered on my Nokia cell phone. I had like 45 text messages. It was a Monday morning. They were all from Andrew who had given his methadone to Nick Sunday night. They were all in the same apartment together, five minutes from my house, and they walked to the back bedroom, and Nick was dead. And his body had turned, I'm just being completely raw with you guys, his body had turned a bluish-green color I have never seen. And I've been around a lot of dead bodies in my life, more than 20. You have to come over here. Can you come? Starting at 6 a.m., 6.30 a.m. I didn't turn my phone on until like 7.30. So I get into my car. I'm driving over there trying to remember my seminary pastoral care classes about pastor, uh, member confidentiality. Priests get real confidentiality. Pastors get some confidence. How does this work in the state of Michigan? But I'm driving over there. They've said he's dead. I don't know what I'm driving into. I drive into the apartment complex. That group that was all staying in that apartment, they're there. Have you called the police? No, we called you first. We don't know what to do. Call the police. The police show up five minutes later. Who are you? I'm like, I'm their pastor. Well, I think, I think they're Christians. <laughs> Again, I've never seen a body that color. Devastated his father devastated his mother for me to have to tell them what had happened. So the girlfriend does not know on that Monday morning that she's pregnant with Nick's son. 
She doesn't know for at least, I think, three more weeks, four more weeks. So now I have turned all my attention to Patrice because I'm thinking this is a, this is a volatile relationship. There was so much love, but so much stuff that they were working through. So she's, she's on watch for me now. And I'm checking in with her every day. I've got pastoral care team. She's spiraling. So I went to one of the wealthiest members of our church. I hardly ever do this. Because when I know I do it, when I know I have to do it, I know they'll listen to me. I went to this man and woman in our church, and I said, she's going to die if we don't do something. It won't be our fault, but she's going to die. This couple, because of their two sons who had also struggled with addiction, felt very sympathetic, knew that Patrice had no parents involved in her life who had means to help with any kind of rehabilitation. And so we convinced, through an intervention, Patrice to go to Arizona for 30 days. We had signed her up for 90. We weren't going to tell her that. And we told her, you go for 30 days. On the 31st day, if you don't want to stay, someone from our church will fly down and fly back with you. The grace of God, she agreed to go. On day 31, she calls my cell phone. I'm not staying here. You made a promise. Come get me. I said, Patrice, let me call you back. So I called people who are way smarter than me on this kind of stuff. And I said, I think we have to break our promise. And I I, I know right now I'm on some tender ground because some of you have walked this with your kids and this is a hard thing. We got our, our two staff counselors together. We got some other people in our church together. And we said, based on what they are sharing with us from this rehab center, she had signed off for them to communicate with us. She hasn't done the work. If she comes back, it might be worse. I called her back. I cannot repeat the words she spoke to me. I want to, but I can't. (laughs) And I told her, I said, I'm sorry, but I love you. You are free to leave that place, but we're not going to come get you. It's one of these places in Arizona. It's way out, way isolated. It would have been awful if she had left. Day 45, day 50, she finally surrenders. She starts to do the work. She starts to work the steps. I'm so thrilled to tell you guys she's been sober this entire time, and that was 18 years ago. We were doing a testimony kind of series in our church several years ago, and so I just called her. And I said, hey, here's how I remember your story, but my memory's not always accurate. How do you? And she's like, yep, I said all that, and I meant it, and I still mean it. You lied. You broke a promise. I said, I did. I broke the promise. And I said, what flipped for you? What changed? Because at day 31, you were still just angry. And she said, in this treatment program, They did a one-week intensive that was focused on one thing, learning how to love yourself well. She had not only never done that work, she had never heard anyone speak like that. And she had someone for six hours a day for five days in a row do a family systems intensive with her. And she realized she didn't know how to do it because she had never seen it done before. And her journey turned when she gave her permission to start to love herself well. It's never about the drugs. It's never about the alcohol. It's never about the sex. It's never about the, it's always what's underneath, right? It's the thing behind the thing. And what Jesus offers in this implicit part of his teaching 
is that if you want to love God and if you want to love others, part of this means that you're going to love yourself the same way you think God is calling you to love other people. So these are just some ways, um, these are some ways to think about this when you're beginning this work. How do you talk to yourself? I'm sorry, how do you talk about yourself to other people? Are you constantly making fun of yourself, denigrating yourself? Someone compliments you and you say, oh, no, 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 that's not. You realize that's not humility, right? Someone says you did something well and you're like, no, I didn't. You just call them a liar. How do you talk about yourself to other people? Is it negative? How do you talk to yourself when life gets hard? How do you react when someone challenges you? How do you react when you fail? These are all indicator lights if you are on the journey of learning to love yourself. Okay. A couple of other layers to this. So in the book, um, we start with loving God, loving humans, loving ourselves, loving our spouses or significant others, loving our children, uh, loving strangers, the vulnerable, the poor, enemies, and as Fallon said so beautifully this morning, creation itself. So that's kind of the, the logical flow of the book. Um, here, here are the two parts that I enjoyed the most, and I'm going to share it with you, and then we're just going to open it up for conversation. Um, in this gospel study that I did, I didn't realize how much I had learned from Jesus about friendship. And I just want to give you a case study for this. I think the two most interesting people in Jesus' life when it comes to friendship are Judas and Peter. Okay, so for the, for the super Bible people among us, what do, what do we know about Judas? That's the first thing that we don't name our kids Judas, right? Judas and Jezebel don't make the list. So the first connotation is negative. Is Judas's offense to Jesus any worse than what Peter did? Not intellectually. In our heart it is, but not intellectually. What else do we know about Judas? Okay, there was some money involved in the scandal. He couldn't forgive himself. Back to your point about learning to love yourself. He did, he genuinely, at least according to Matthew's account, he felt sorrowful for what he had done. Why did he betray Jesus? Okay, that's, that's one solid theory in church history. Judas is like, no, Jesus, you're better than this. Let's get this party started. Because it wasn't a lot of money, right? Surely he could have got more money than that. The other interpretation is profound disappointment. Man, this guy is committed to nonviolence. How boring is that, Right? He really believes this nonviolence thing. That there's no way he can be who we said he was. He's Mr. Rogers. We need a leader. Guy won't even carry a weapon. Right, so he, he finally is exasperated. Um, how does he die? Takes his own life, right? Now here's what I can't prove but I think it's true. I think in the resurrection, when Jesus is surveying all that had happened, and, and he does have some downtime. We don't, we don't get details, but he's got some downtime between the resurrection and Pentecost, right? He's got some time to reflect. I am absolutely convinced when you read the Gospels from Matthew to the end of John that one of the reasons... Jesus is so passionate about restoring his friendship to Peter is that he didn't have that opportunity to do it with Judas. I'm not talking about judgment day. I'm not saying Judas went to hell. I'm not saying any of that. Okay? I'm saying in Jesus' age 33, he knows he's got limited time before the ascension. He's going to go to the Father. And he knows Peter's betrayal was just as felt, tangible, and public as Judas's was. Thrice. Right? 
I don't know. One gospel account says he cursed the name of Jesus. I think part of why Jesus met Peter, if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, it's incredible. Um, there is a, a Catholic church that has a, a little part of, of the Sea of Galilee where we don't know, but it is reported that this great forgiveness reconciliation moment happens, right? Where Jesus is teaching Peter, I'm not just saying I absolve you of your sin. I'm telling you that because of your sin and my forgiveness, we will now be closer than we were before. And they were pretty close. That the betrayal actually became the grist or the material to strengthen their bond. Part of the reason Jesus was so motivated to restore his relationship with Peter is that he didn't get to do it with Judas. I'm not saying he was surprised by this. I'm saying he was a human like us who had to deal with the reality that, that Judas' own contrition, his own conviction, took him to a place where he thought his best solution was to end it. And so Jesus transfers that sorrow to Peter. I'm not going to let happen to you what happened to him. Why in the Gospel of Mark? When Jesus has been raised from the dead. It's at the very end of Mark. Jesus says, hey, you go tell the disciples and Peter. Now, one way to read that is Jesus isn't sure if Peter's a disciple. I, that's not how I read it. <laughs> Just in case, Peter, you want to come back to the fold. He's calling him out, right? So remember at the beginning when I said what's great about storge and phileo and eros love is that Jesus takes all three of those family, uh, brotherly or, or friendship, family, friendship, and eros, and he baptizes them in agape, which is love is a rugged commitment to be with someone for someone under Christ-likeness for as long as it takes. His friendships became his family. And there's restitution with his mother and at least James. And his family becomes his friends. So it all gets really murky when you baptize these different notions of love in agape. Your friends become your family and your family become your friends. And when Jesus is having this encounter, he is now living out with Peter at the end of John what he had said in chapter 13, 14, and 15 when he says, no greater love exists than this, that he would lay his life down for his friends. No longer call me master or Lord, and I'm not going to call you servant. But he reframes their connection to each other so it is not based on status or power, it is based in their mutual affection or love for each other. This, for me, was the gift of COVID. And I can't speak for your life. I can only bear witness to my life. But I found out who my friends were. And I found out who I was a friend to. And it turns out I had some superficial friendships. Can I get a witness? They didn't survive COVID, and it's okay. I don't wish anything ill on those people now because I've done my self-care work. But the friendships that endured, it was because that, uh, that sense of solidarity had been immersed, baptized in agape. I'm with you. I'm for you. Jesus is the standard, and I'm not going anywhere. This is going to take a while. And that's what kingdom friendship, what is a church other than just a collection of men and women who are committed to being real friends? Not church members, not if I was any better, I'd be you, not, not just the weird stuff that church people say on Sundays to other church. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about my friend whose wife filed during COVID for divorce. And he just showed up at my house. And I was like, boundaries, bro. You got to like text me ahead of time. And he's like, I brought beer. I'm like, forget what I said about boundaries. 
Right, and he goes to the back porch. He knows what my favorite beer is. He had done his homework. And he said, can we just sit and be friends? I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm not talking about church hallway on a Sunday morning. I'm talking about your back porch. I'm talking about what happens in NA and AA and SA meetings in the church basement of most of our churches. That's what Jesus introduced into the Greco-Roman Empire. This McKnight calls it fellowship of difference, that slaves and free could be friends, that men and women could be friends, that Aquila and Priscilla could be equals, that Jew and Gentile could be friends. That's what Jesus interjects into the Greco-Roman culture. Rodney Stark makes a fascinating case in his The Rise of Christianity, that this is one of the reasons that Christianity continued to grow in the Roman Empire. Friendship was not based on status or power or money. It was based on mutual goodwill, that I am just as committed to your well-being as you are to my well-being, that I am just as committed to agape love as you are committed to the flourishing of my own life and the people that I care about. Ah, so much, so much to say about that. Um, before I do the last one, and then we'll have some Q&A. If you don't know the story of Rick Rascorla, Google it tonight before you go to sleep. He is the chief of security in one of the World Trade Centers who gave up his life, and he saved almost 3,000 more people from dying on September 11th, 2001. It is one of the most beautiful depictions of love in the modern world I have ever ever encountered. Rick Rescorla, the New Yorker, has an essay about his life that will take your breath away. R-E-S-C-O-R-A, I'm sorry, L-A, R-E-S-C-O-R-L-A, Rescorla. He's buried in England, or he at least has a cemetery uh, attributed to him in England. Wasn't a church-going person, but wouldn't you know, on the tombstone it reads, greater love is no man. He was somewhere between the 35th and the 64th floor when the second tower fell. Because of his courage on September 11, 2001, 2,997 out of 3,000 people only him and two other people in that part of the building died, including a woman who gave birth to her child just a few days after September 11th. That's the kind of friendship. This is not, this is not flimsy, right? It's not weak. It has teeth. It has substance to it. Um, okay, let's stop there. I've thrown a lot at you. I was going to talk about enemies, but then I'm just going to about think about people I don't like, and I'll get all red in the face, and you can read about it. <laughs> you got some people you don't like either, right? <laughs> oh, this will feel good. I actually, I did, uh, so the chapter on enemies, um, when I, I, I wrote the entire book at my kitchen table, and um, I had to visibly, I had to physically get up and go for a walk because the, the three weeks I was spending on enemies, the Greek word for enemies is ekthros, E-C, what, transliterated, E-C-T-H-R-O-S, ekthros. And I did not realize that there were still two men in my life. It's not that I don't like them. I can't stand them. And I'm just keeping it 100. Like, I... Uh, I still see them occasionally, and I, I, I just, um, I've tried it all. To, <laughs> I've tried forgiveness. I've tried talking. Like I, because I, I feel like what they did was so plotted and so sinister and so intentional. It's like, no, I'm gonna enjoy not liking you for a while. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. This grace thing is gonna take a while. <laughs> um. But we all have them in our family systems. It's the neighbor that drives you crazy 
And if you haven't had that experience yet, just get ready. You will have them. It's, it's someone who betrayed you. Um, and, and part of the Jesus ethic is paying attention to that and asking myself, yourself, what's my responsibility in this situation? And the answer is not always the same. Um, Dorothy Day, famous uh, Catholic worker writer, she says, I only love God as much as the person I love the least. And then you're reading Paul, and he says in 2 Corinthians 5, you were once the enemies of God. Put that in a Hillsong worship song, right? You were once the, me? And yet, while you were the enemy of God, my paraphrase, Christ's love was so full in his body that he died for you. Okay, thoughts on love, questions on love. I wrote this down on the plane. I just watched the new Whitney Houston movie because she is the gold standard for music. And here's what she opened one of her concerts with. She said, this song I'm about to sing is about love. The ways, or she said, the things we do to get love and what we do to keep it. Comments, thoughts, questions? I don't remember. It wasn't Dolly's song. It wasn't Dolly's song. I knew someone was going to ask that as soon as I said it. You should watch that movie, though. You talk about a parable of uh, how complicated love is. Her, that, I don't, it's on Southwest. I don't know if it's on Netflix or what, but it's really an incredible movie. Yeah. Yes, sir. When you figured out that people weren't true friends, how do you process that? Do you say, oh, great, thanks. You know, or how do you, or do you mourn that? Yeah, so the question is, uh, my paraphrase, when a friendship falls apart or it's revealed that it wasn't what you thought it was. Okay, so I don't want to be flipping about that. This is a very tender thing. Yes, you have to grieve it. And, um, and you have to be patient with yourself and ask yourself, how did this thing fall apart? Why, what, what is my responsibility in this? What is their responsibility in this? What is something that's a part of this that was neither of our responsibilities, right? Because sometimes it's just life. Like something happens and then two people respond to it. And as, as is often said, we're, we're sinful people. Like we're broken people. Um, I have found for me, bringing in people that I genuinely trust to speak into the situation is the closest I get to direct revelation. So, like, I'm thinking of those, those, the people that I was eager to think about in the enemies chapter, the, if you're a Seinfeld fan, the Newman, right? Um, I had to ask older mentors, women and men in my life, to say, okay, here's the situation as I see it. I'm going to try and tell it as objectively as I can, but it's not objective because it's me. If this were you, how would you handle this? And what ends up happening is they ask me questions I had never even thought about because I was so convinced of self-justification that I had my hands squeezed so tight that just a gentle, there's some women in our church who will just have this gentle way of asking a question that you just feel so like, oh, I can't hide anymore. Um, so, I, yeah, I think being patient, I think uh, my therapist is extremely helpful in this kind of stuff. If you have a therapist who really no understands like group dynamics, <laughs> um, and uh, I should have said this earlier, there's a big difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Huge difference. Think about the betrayals that are represented in this room. Just because someone betrayed you does not mean you are obligated to reconcile with them. That is not what we're talking about. Forgiveness is what you can control. Forgiveness is me saying, the thing that you did 
the thing that you said was wrong. It was meant to destroy. I do not receive it. I reject it. But I will no longer hold it against you. That's forgiveness. Reconciliation, when possible, says, here's the good news. You and I can actually be closer because of this thing that's between us. If we transform that bitterness and allow it to to bring us Peter and Jesus. But there are several instances. I mean, for me, tangibly in our church, anytime someone has experienced abuse, and 95% of the time it's a woman. Just telling you the truth. There are women in our church that we have had to carefully help them to see forgiveness might take you five years. Reconciliation probably is never possible. And that's discernment and wisdom. It's, 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 I feel so divided on that topic because there are people in my life I have not been able to reconcile with um, for various reasons. And then some I have been able to. And the reconciliation is so powerful that you want it to happen in all these different experiences. But sometimes it's just not possible. Sometimes people die. Sometimes people move away and they don't. Sometimes people are so toxic or unhealthy in their own stuff, you have to draw that boundary because they don't even know what reconciliation, they're not capable of it. Right? No, that's right. That's good. This is good. Yeah, I think it really depends. Uh, This is where I think specific situations are so different. I think it really depends. If you have a a community of people who are walking with you, I think you let them speak into that. If, if you feel like reconciliation is possible, then you have to be very clear with the other person about what you think that looks like and how it will work because it is not magic. It takes time. It takes direct honesty. It takes other people being a part of it. It takes uh, not watering down the offense, but being very specific about how you've been hurt, what was violated, like, the devil and the angel is in the details. Like you have to be very particular about that. Um, but again, it's it's not always possible. Oh, I think, man, I think forgiveness and reconciliation is one of like the hallmarks of Christianity. I think it's just so important for us, and it resurfaces in our lives all the time, right? All the time with our families and our children and our all the time. Yes, sir. No judgment. It's combined, our two books have sold over 300,000 copies. I'll let you guess which one is uh, the bulk of that. Suzanne has a book called, or several books, but the one I was referring to is The Road Back to You. Um, you have one that just came out last year. The Path Between Us is the second one. And uh, The Journey Toward Wholeness is the third one. And combined, we have a book that's about to cross a million. You need to... I, I stopped reading the Amazon ranking pages during COVID, apparently. Yeah. 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 Bell Hooks, all about love. Now, I, I, I do have to add one thing to it. Not everyone appreciates Bell Hooks. Okay. So I'm just letting you know, if you don't, don't put that on me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have learned so much from Bell Hooks, though. Uh, her writing voice is so tender but so honest. Uh, and most of it's about self-love and how to take care of yourself. Yeah, she's a, a African-American woman. Um, just remarkable, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, can, I'll just tell you about my life. Okay, number one, a really good therapist. Um, And they are super expensive right now (laughs) because they got overwhelmed during COVID. And most of them are worth every dollar you spend. If anything, they are there. It's a deal. Like they should be charging more. I would start with therapy. Number two, I would dive into this stuff we're talking about with the Enneagram. And here's why. 
the Enneagram is about what motivates you and how you operate in the world. It's not measuring your behavior. It's describing why you do what you do, which is what makes humans interesting. You and I might do the same thing, but we do it for completely different reasons. Um, so Enneagram work, my introduction was Richard Rohr, who, meant, or who taught uh, Suzanne the Enneagram, or at least mentored early on. That was my introduction. Some people don't find Rohr's book accessible because it's a beast. I mean, it's thick. <laughs> yeah, he's, yeah, he's one of the smartest people alive. Um, so that's two. Um, a, a third thing is if you're in any kind of church or Christian community, um, and I'm saying this very delicately because obviously I don't know your story at all, but there are people in your church who are on the same journey that you're on and want to heal, want to do work. Find those people and do it together. What are you reading? What podcast? What conference are you going? What are, what's your counselor telling you? They're not responsible for your help, right? But it's just like training for a marathon or anything. If you try and do it by yourself, it's not going to work. But if you do it in community with other people, it's so much easier to do. Yeah, and I, I've got plenty of time if you want to stick around afterwards because I would love to keep that conversation going. That's, again, the more people in our church do this work, the healthier our church is. I have a vested interest in people caring about this kind of stuff. Yeah. Thoughts, comments, questions? Yes, sir. Great. I think sometimes when we think about love, we have to do something really big. My wife passed away almost six years ago after a long illness, and people did a lot of stuff for me, bringing, us, bringing me food and that kind of thing. But the greatest thing that ever, they ever did, or one family couple did, Debbie and I always sat on row six at church, or like a lot of people, who, that's my spot, don't sit there. Well, after she passed, that first Sunday, I was sitting there by myself, and I know there were people going in church feeling sorry for me. There's Rodney sitting up there by himself. The next week, a couple came and said, can we sit with you? And that was, <laughs> was the greatest thing anybody could do. Rather than all the food and everything else people did, they sat by me. Right. Yeah, it wasn't a big thing to them. It was, let's just go sit with Rodney. Um, along the lines of your story, my husband died 11 and a half years ago. And at, at our church, we had a, a family prayer time. So people that wanted prayer could go to the elders who were standing in the back and pray with them. Um, and then the praise team would be singing. And my husband died on a Thursday and on Sunday, I was at church, and during prayer time, I swear half the congregation got in line and hugged me one after another, and prayer time went the longest it's ever gone, and I won't ever forget that. That's, that's what I was saying earlier is, like, I love going to, to concerts and sporting events, and if, if we have anything as a church to offer, it's to be a, a community of love. That's actually the one compelling thing we've got right now going for us. If we can get over all of our other stuff and just live into that kind of tender expression of taking care of each other so that we can then love other people who aren't in the community, right? That's great. I saw another hand. I have a sibling who passed away in August and another sibling who passed away in September. And we all live within just a couple of blocks of each other. And every Sunday night at 6 o'clock, we get together and play games. And that first night that we got together again, I knew it would be really hard because there's only three of us left. And another couple from our church came to play games with us that night. So it was all of us playing a game that we'd never played before. And that made that transition of that loss amazing all right let's pray together father and son and holy spirit thank you for this beautiful room that we're in 
like your grace with the spirit wind blowing through here. We hear the birds. We're aware of creation, our own bodies. And we thank you for the miracle that is our own existence and the opportunity we have to love and to be loved and to do it well to the glory of your son. May you give us the courage and the grace and the hope to continue this journey that we're on together as we pray the way Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Go in peace.